This week, I've been thinking about 18 years ago. 18 years ago, uh, I was the prospective parliamentary candidate for Carmarthen East and Dinevor. That's a constituency in West Wales, uh, near to where I grew up. It's a bit of old industrial South Wales, together with some of the rural uh, agricultural land. Beautiful countryside. Uh, I was running as a candidate 18 years ago. It was a brutal campaign. It was very difficult. There were things said that have left scars that have taken many years to heal, particularly scars that were directed at me running as a Christian candidate, uh, as a known Christian. Things said that not just hurt me, but hurt my family and my wife. But of course, in any such campaign, however brutal it is to the individual, there are moments of lightness and brightness. And I remember canvassing one day. Canvassing is when you go door knocking as a candidate. You've got 90 seconds to introduce yourself, see if the person is voting, what's going to influence their vote, will they vote for you? 90 seconds to do that. And I was up in the far reaches of the constituency. We have a map, uh, I think. Actually, we have a picture to prove that I was a candidate, uh, I think, that sort of should be coming up. Um, there's me with a former, one of the seven remaining living prime ministers we have at the minute in the UK. Um, and I was uh, canvassing in a place called Cumfrud, a little village in the constituency. You see it up there. Now, there's about a dozen to 15 houses in Cumfrud and a post office. Typical, quintessential Welsh little village. So I was door knocking with some of my team and came to one particular door and it almost instantly opened and there was an elderly lady. I've been waiting for you, she said. <laughs> Could be positive, let's see. Are you going to vote at the next election, I said. What is, what's going to influence your vote? Immigration, she said. Now, like you, I got a bit nervous at that point. This could go one of several ways. So I said, immigration, why is that a big issue for you? Well, there's immigrants coming to Cumfrud, she said. Really? Have there been immigrants in Cumfrud? Yes, they've moved in next to the post office, she said. Oh, where are they from, I asked. Swansea, she said. <laughs> now, there's, there's no real reason why I shared that anecdote with you, apart from Rico loves me retelling it time and time again. And I, and I did feel good about my nine years of service until I heard how long Rico had been doing Christianity Explored. But if there is a reason, maybe it's the reason to say that the purpose of today's sermon is to think about success. And my starting point is, as a political candidate, I was not a success, I lost. But I have had seven full-paid, full-time jobs since leaving university, and in my current and last job, I'm chief executive. Now, to the world, that may look like a success. But is it? What does the Bible have to say about success? Now, if you do a word search on the different trans English translations of the Bible, the word success only appears between 14 and 40 times. That does not seem that much, does it? So is God really not interested in success? And where it does appear, it seems to be clumped in certain passages. And it's in one of those little passages that the word success appears multiple times that we're going to be studying this morning, Genesis 39 and the story of Joseph. 
But it is perhaps surprising, isn't it, that the word success in Joseph's life is not associated with when he was the privileged son getting showered with gifts from his dad, or when he became prime minister, or even when he saved the country from famine. No, Joseph was successful as a slave and a prisoner. Success then in the Bible seems to be strangely connected with some of the worst moments in people's lives. And it is the unsettling thing about this passage is that success is not linked to status or achievement. In fact, what success is linked to is faithfulness. We see success described in the Bible always in the context of God's faithfulness to us. And our living response to his faithfulness is an attempt to be faithful to him. If success is faithful, is inextricably linked to faithfulness in this way, I want to suggest that that will have a profound impact on how we think about work, how we do work, and what we hope our work will achieve. But let's start with this passage. And if success is indeed accomplishing desired goals or achievements, then Joseph in this part of his life is wholly unsuccessful. What he achieves is an ever-worsening position. He's not on a career ladder, he's on a career downward slide. And if we look at chapter 39, we can split it into three scenes. Now, scene one is where we find Joseph, having been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's now a servant slave in the house of an uber-wealthy, privileged member of the Egyptian establishment named Potiphar. Now, having been a bit of a brat in his youth, he seems to be cleaning up his act as a household servant. And throughout this period, we learned that the Lord was with Joseph. And any success he had in Potiphar's household was a blessing from the Lord. But then things go wrong in scene two. His world falls apart. As he resists Potiphar's wife's attempts to seduce him, one day he gets cornered and Potiphar's wife makes accusations of attempted rape. Joseph is framed. Potiphar's wife is believed and Joseph is not. He's thrown into the royal jail with a life sentence. Joseph, to all extents and purposes, is abandoned. Nobody believes him. Nobody defends him. Even the God to whom Joseph seemed to be faithful is silent on this matter. The God of all creation seems not to have any authority over the Egyptian judicial system. Despite Joseph's character and track record of good behavior, it does not keep him out of jail and neither does his God. And so we come to scene three at the end of this chapter, verses 21 and 23. Here it's a mirror image in many ways of the first scene. But instead of being in a house, Joseph is now in prison. And we see that even here the Lord is with Joseph and gives him success in all that he does once again. And his reward? Well, delegated authority, more responsibility, and trust from the prison hierarchy. Now, it's very easy for us to overlook how remarkable this story is, because we are so familiar with it. And more importantly, we know the end of the story. But remember, at this point, Joseph didn't know the end of his story. If you asked him when he was in Potiphar's house what the story was for him, it would be to live his life out as a slave. In prison, it would be to die incarcerated and alone. And despite that, he still clung to the hope that God was faithful. 
That must have seemed a ridiculous hope to everybody around Joseph. It must have seemed ridiculous even to Joseph at times. After all, he'd done everything right, hadn't he? And yet his situation got worse and worse. From the world's perspective, this does not look like a success story. But the reason why it is, is because of God's faithfulness to Joseph. And that has a number of implications, not just for Joseph, but for us. And the first implication is this, that because God is faithful, he's also with us. The text tells us in several places, doesn't it, that the Lord was with Joseph, whether he was a slave or a prisoner. And the link between God's faithfulness and his presence in our lives is not just found in this passage. It's a recurring theme throughout the Bible. I said earlier that the word success is clumped into different passages. One of those other passages is 1 Samuel 18, where David seems to have success after success in his endeavors. And the context of that passage is that Saul the king was deeply envious of David's gifts and popularity. He was deeply insecure that he was going to be overthrown and usurped by David. So Saul's solution? Well, it was to give terrible rubbish jobs to David in which he would fail. Indeed, if Saul was lucky, David would even get killed in some of the things that he was given to do. And yet David was successful because the Lord was with him, the Lord was faithful to him, and the Lord blessed his endeavours. What Saul as uh, what Saul saw as career-ending assignments turned out to be CV assets because of God's presence. Joseph's story and David's example remind us that success at work is a blessing that comes from God's faithful presence alongside us. We need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? God is present wherever and whenever and whatever we're doing. God does not just journey with chief executives. He doesn't just turn up in the lives of the well-paid. He doesn't just go to the best assignments. God is always faithful in every circumstance. We're never abandoned. He is always there. We may run away from God at times, but he is the good shepherd that seeks out the lost sheep. He is the father that casts off the cloak, gets rid of his shoes and runs to welcome the prodigal son home. Like Joseph, there are days when we doubt that God is actually with us. You won't see or feel his presence alongside you, but he is there. I remember years ago going to talk about work and faith, and the speaker started by saying that as Christians, we have the privilege and obligation to take Jesus into our workplace. But, she said, there's also a deeper truth that Jesus is already there in our workplace. He is sovereign over our workplace. He already knows and loves my colleagues. He understands what's going to be on my to-do list tomorrow morning and what assignments I have to do next week. He knows the role and job I have next year. The days that you don't want to go into work and I don't want to go into work, we need to remember that Jesus has gone before us and is calling us to where he wants us to be. Now, if presence is the first implication of faith, God's faithfulness, the second is this, that he is sovereign over our decisions. You see, most of us are uniquely blessed in having lots of choice when it comes to our work. Choice over our career, our job, and the decisions within it. 
Joseph didn't have that choice, did he? He couldn't decide as a slave who would be his master, what house he would serve in. He couldn't decide what prison he went to. And there will be seasons in life where some of us don't have choice either when it comes to work. We have obligations and responsibilities to fulfill. We have to pay the bills. We have to look after loved ones and vulnerable ones. But many of us do have choice in work. And in so many conversations that I've had over the years, I found that people are sometimes paralysed by the privilege of choice. They think that there's one perfect outcome or decision that God wants them to get. And they get frustrated and even angry with the Lord because they can't discern what that is. Now let me say that sometimes God does speak to us very clearly and very specifically But more often than not, he just wants us to get on and make the decision. We can do that. We can do that. We can make the decision because we can trust in his sovereignty, in his faithfulness. Whatever our decision is, to the best of our abilities, he will go before us. He will use it for his story and for our good. We need to use the gifts he has given us, our intelligence, the information we can collect, the advice of good friends or church leaders, prayer, listening to others, thinking about the doors that open and close. We need to use all of those things to discern God's will, but ultimately to step up and make the decision and trust that God is sovereign over it. I've taken a number of jobs over the years that on the CV do not make sense. But I felt that God was not just opening the door, but pushing me through it. There are other times in decision-making when God slams the door in your face. I worked for the Office of the Children's Commissioner for England for seven years. Over my career, I've normally got itchy feet after about four or five years at most. Time to move on, time for a new challenge. And it was the same at the Children's Commissioner's Office. Time to move on after four or five years. And so I applied for jobs where... Let me just share with you, between you and me, I was quite frankly the best person in the country to do those jobs. (laughs) And yet I didn't even get an interview. God was slamming the door in my face. I'd made the decision, but God was still sovereign. Now, when I learnt to get over my frustration and my anger at God not conforming to my desire and the decision that I'd made... He opened my eyes to what he was doing in my workplace and how he could use me in that place. In those two extra years that I stayed, I was able to start projects that I now am deeply and immensely proud of, working with children who'd been excluded from school, who'd been abused in different ways, uh, children turning up unaccompanied asylum seekers. I had the privilege of having conversations with colleagues I would never have had otherwise. A young woman who saw the amount of evil in the world and was grappling with what is evil? How do we define it? Another member, a colleague of mine who had a close friend who was dying of cancer and decided that euthanasia was the best option for him. And what did life mean? You see, when I look back, those two extra years at the Children's Commission's office don't look much on my CV, but God was faithful to me in those times. He opened my eyes so I could see how he could use me for his purposes. And lastly, the implication of God's faithfulness is not just that he's present, 
not just that he's sovereign over our decisions, but also that, that all of that gives us great and deep assurance. We should not be racked and sort of worried as workers by insecurity. We should not be worried and having to prove something to our boss or our colleagues, our families, or even ourselves. We have the assurance that we are dearly loved children of God and that he is faithful to us in every circumstance. Knowing that we are deeply loved children, well, that demands a response, doesn't it? A response of our faithfulness to him. And that's what we certainly see in Joseph's story here. He was faithful to God, both as a servant and as a prisoner. It would have been so easy for Joseph, wouldn't it, to just give up at any stage of this story. He could have decided to withdraw from caring or just conform to the expectations of working to the lowest common denominator. But Joseph did neither. We see him being faithful to God in ways that directly relate to how we are called to be faithful in our work. First of all, we see that Joseph's faithfulness is expressed in industry and excellence in work. We're not told much about his performance running Potiphar's household, but clearly he is both committed and capable. He's trusted with more and more, so he effectively becomes the chief operating officer for Potiphar Inc. I wonder how many of us think that faithfulness to God is seen in the excellence and the industry of our daily work. Industry and excellence in the small acts that we do each day, not just the big projects. In the email reply that we send, not just the report to the board. In how we work when we're alone, not just when the boss is looking over our shoulder. Working diligently and excellently in whatever we do, wherever we are placed, is a great act of faithfulness. This week, I was speaking to a young Christian. She was really unhappy with her job. I may as well not be there, she said. I'm not doing anything. I'm just answering letters and emails, just doing stuff. This was a talented person I was speaking to, and I knew that she was capable of far far more than what she was being given. But was she right? Was it pointless in her being in her office? Was her work really worth nothing? God, after all, has placed her there. We can often think of work as simply a blessing or a curse. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that it is also a spiritual discipline, an act of spiritual faithfulness, an act of service and humility. It reveals how we view other people. Are they image bearers or are they simply a means to an end? How we work reveals something about our spiritual health. Some of my biggest disappointments, I have to admit, at work, especially as a manager and a boss, have come when Christians have let me down. I've had to dismiss Christians for negligence, for gross misconduct at work, and Christians have been the absolute worst examples, in my experience, of slander, disrespect, and disobedience. One example comes to mind. I was managing a team, and some members of that team created a WhatsApp group. The purpose of the WhatsApp group? To spread malicious and slanderous rumours and gossip about colleagues. The WhatsApp group was created by a Christian. The whistleblower who disclosed it to me was not. 
Now, some of you may not be shocked by that or surprised, but it should break all of our hearts, shouldn't it? There are times when I don't want to care about my job. Of course there are those days and those times, but it is an act of faithfulness to get up, get up each day and work for the Lord. Working hard and working excellently is an act of faithfulness, and it is an act of faithfulness not just in the present, but builds faithfulness for the future. You see, in scene two of chapter 39, Joseph resists temptation to compromise himself and his God. The scene has chilling parallels, doesn't it, to contemporary stories of women being exploited by men with a threat of ruin on one hand and the promise of career advancement on the other. The power dynamic and outcomes seem almost inevitable. So how did Joseph resist? Well, it was in the discipline of his small choices made over many years. I often reflect on the truth of the saying that the big decisions I make today are rooted in the small decisions I made 10, 20, 30 years ago. And that's a point that's picked up in one of the most widely popular Harvard Business Review articles ever published. Written by somebody called Clayton Christensen in 2010, he'd been diagnosed with cancer and was giving his farewell address to his Harvard Business class, uh, School class. And out of that came an article, and out of that came a book. And the title of the lecture and the article in the book is, How Will You Measure Your Life? He suggests three tests. First, how can I be sure I will be happy in my career? Second, how can I make sure my relationships with my family or spouse become an enduring source of happiness? And the third, how do I stay out of jail? <laughs> it's an intriguing question, perplexing question, perhaps. I'm going to let you read the article for the answers to the first two. But the reason why he asked this third question is this. A number of his graduation class from business school ended up in prison because of financial fraud and white-collar crime. He goes on to relate how the marginal cost rule applies to our decision-making at work. It is true that the first compromise and giving into temptation is the hardest. The second is easier. Compromising a bit more and a bit more always becomes easier because you don't have to justify everything, just the extra bit that you're compromising. He notes how powerful the lie is that we only give in to temptation just this once. Beware the just this once principle, he says. Now for me, the just this once principle was around expenses. Early on in my career, I worked for an organization, a company that had two ways of claiming expenses. You could claim for what you actually spent with receipts, or you could claim a day rate that was meant to cover and be an easy way to just cover all expenses you were likely to uh, incur if you were out for the day or out overnight. The problem was, for me as a Christian, was that the day rate was significantly more generous than what people needs to spend on actual expenses. It was a nice little money earner for lots of people. They would go out to a conference, claim the day rate, and actually not spend a penny. It was a nice little bonus in their wage packet. The fact that I decided to keep all my receipts and only claim what I'd, uh, what I'd spent was countercultural. I was told it was actually being awkward. I was being inefficient. Why did I collect all the invoices? It was easier to claim just the one day rate. But my decision at that point 
has deeply affected how I view expenses ever since. I try to be as accountable as I can in what I claim. That small decision I made of a day rate of actual expenses years and years ago, well, I can't say that it kept me out of prison, but it certainly kept my expense claims honest. For Christensen, the example was a basketball game. He was in college, his basketball team was really successful, the championship game of the season decider was on a Sunday, and he'd committed that he was going to go to church every Sunday. His teammates said, oh, come on, just this once, can't you miss church? What difference will it make? It's just one week. This is a once-in-a-lifetime championship game. Christensen decided to go to church, and he writes this in his article. The lesson I learned from this is that it's easier to hold on to your principles 100% of the time than it is to hold them 98% of the time. If you give in to just this once based on a marginal cost analysis, as some of my former classmates have done, you'd regret where you end up. You've got to define for yourself what you stand for and draw the line in a safe place. Of course, Our obligation and responsibility is to aim for 100%. None of us are going to be perfect. That's why we thank God that he is a God of grace. But hold to the 100% principle, otherwise you'll go wrong. Now my point for sharing this is that Joseph's faithfulness in the crunch big moments of being confronted by Potiphar's wife is rooted in his faithfulness that he has shown over years of service and in his small decisions up to that point. That's why faithfulness in work is a spiritual discipline. It forms our godliness over many years in the crucible of many temptations. Let me put it in the way that maybe the author of Proverbs would put it. It is a fool who thinks that they can conjure up virtue in the moment of greatest temptation. It is the wise who will have been training for that moment for years with disciplined daily choices. Lastly, I want to suggest that Joseph's faithfulness is seen in his accepting responsibility and using that responsibility to serve others. Do you see that in the last part of chapter 39? The Lord is faithful to Joseph and shows Joseph his kindness. How? Well, it's not in a bigger cell. It's not in bigger food portions, but it's around more responsibility and how Joseph is called to run the prison. Now, if I was Joseph, I would have told the prison guard where what he could do with his responsibility. Being given responsibility over much of the daily affairs did not seem a particularly good deal. I would have sulked I'd have grumbled, I'd have wanted to be in the shadows, and I definitely would not have volunteered for extra duties. Be honest, how many of us are like that at work? We sometimes want to hide from the responsibilities that are given to us, let alone volunteer for more. And if we do take on more more responsibility, I wonder if it's with one eye on the advancement of ourselves financially or in terms of our career. There was no danger of that for Joseph, was there? So why did he do it? Well, it was an act of faithfulness. He accepted responsibility and used the role God had given him to serve others. We see how that will work out in the next chapter of Joseph's story. But for now, he was simply living up to his creation mandate. 
You see, in Genesis 1, we learn that we are made in God's image. That means we are made to create and cultivate and develop God's creation. We are his image bearers in that sense. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? But when it comes to responsibility at work, we often talk a better game than we play. I've worked with plenty of people over the years who are quick to complain to me about not having a say in the decisions I have to make, but are very quick to abdicate responsibility in the decisions they are given to to make themselves. Because abdicating responsibility, I see as what the the Bible describes as our sinful nature. We must struggle against it, and we must see that part of our faithful presence at work is accepting responsibility and serving others. We may not want responsibility, but it is our responsibility to take it. We do not want to be God's stewards stewards of his creation often. We just want the status without responsibility. We want power without accountability. We covet what we don't have and ignore what God has given us. As Alice was mentioning earlier, God gives us responsibility and power to serve others wherever he has placed us, whether in a big way or a small way. The worker who accepts responsibility, who seeks to serve his colleagues and clients with that responsibility, well, that worker is rare and wonderful. So, in conclusion, success comes in the context of God's faithfulness to us, in his presence, in his sovereignty over our decisions, in the assurance we can take from that. And our response to God's loving faithfulness to us, well, is to seek to be faithful to him, isn't it? How do we do that? Well, through industry, through the excellence of our work, through the faithful discipline in our small decisions as well as big ones, in accepting responsibility and using it to serve others. We sometimes fall way short of that, but again, we thank God that we worship and have a saviour who, who gives us grace to pick ourselves up. This year marks the 650th anniversary of Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. It was, in fact, the first English book authored by a woman. They are, they are, her revelations are a wonderful testimony of the power of God's love to transform us. And in her writing, she notes this, that God showed us two kinds of sickness. One is impatience or lethargy as a result of letting our burdens weigh us, weigh on us too heavily. And the other is doubting or fear. Now, if the opposite of sickness is spiritual success, then our understanding, our awareness of God's faithfulness to us and our response to that is the antidote to impatience, lethargy, doubting and fear. To some, learning about this God who is faithful, who is loving, who is grace, will be new to you. And if that is the case, you should make your way to Christianity Explored. Let nothing get in the way of you finding out about this God who is true, this God who is good, this God who is faithful, and this God who is waiting to meet you. And for the rest of us 
who may have already made a commitment to follow Jesus and have him as our faithful saviour, then the challenge is to follow Joseph's example, isn't it? To go to work tomorrow, living faithfully in light of his faithfulness to us. I started with recounting the story of how I ran for Parliament 18 years ago. I shared that it was a brutal campaign. I shared that I lost, that I was not a success. But then, what God has been very gracious in my life doing is that over the last 18 years, he's been given me the opportunities to look back and reflect on that campaign so that I could see how he was remarkably faithful to me and how I attempted to be faithful to him. It still hurts, that campaign. But I thank God that he was faithful. He kept me. And my loving response is wanting to be faithful to him. May God the Holy Spirit guide you and bless you in your faithfulness in work tomorrow. Make you a success in your calling to be his children. Thank you.